Good morning and welcome everybody. You're listening to The Breakfast Show on Faith FM 87.6, or 88, right across Australia, right across the Faith FM network, wherever you are. Positively different radio in the morning. You're on The Breakfast Show with Lyle and... Minnie. Minnie, how are you this morning? Oh, yeah, look, I'm pretty good. Hey, it's, um, yeah, it's not as hot as it was yesterday morning. It's... it's a like very pleasant temperature. Even out there early at the in the morning yesterday, I was like, mm, "It's not cold." <laughs> yesterday morning, early in the morning, was just absolutely amazing. Oh, yeah, it was so amazing. We, oh. we had breakfast mm. on our front porch. Yes. Uh, at about six o'clock in the morning, the temperature was just perfection uh-huh, for uh-huh. breakfast. Yeah. Yes, and then it got a little bit, a little bit hot <laughs> and a little bit windy. We went four wheel driving. Just about got blown off the top of a mountain. Could barely stand up in the wind. It was. Did you see the wind blown off the, the blew the roof off of uh, one of our buildings here at the office? Did it? Yeah. Oh, I don't even know. Ripped it to shreds. So we had some pretty um, full on wind yesterday. Oh, I didn't even see. <laughs> there you go. But I had a fantastic weekend. So good. Uh, let me tell you all about it. Please do. Started on a Friday. We had family Thanksgiving on Friday. Heaps of. I think there was like thirteen people. We had it. Um, it was at our son and daughter in law's place, which was nice. amazing. So first time we've ever. Not had Thanksgiving at our house, so that was really cool. My son and his girlfriend were visiting from Queensland, which was extra special. Uh, they they're heading back today, so uh, we went four wheel driving on Sunday. I got to preach up at Char- Tari Church on on uh, on Sabbath on Saturday. So I've just had I've just had an amazing weekend. You had a good weekend, yeah. And then I got given a car. Oi! How cool is that? Well, I feel like we need some story time here. Like just. How did this happen? What, is it for a particular thing? Like No, it's a really cool car as well. It's mm. one of, there was only 600 of these <gasps> ever brought into Australia. And you have one. And I have one. And oh. they're kind of super dodgy, so I'm surprised <laughs> that there's one that's even still running, and this one is still running, which is just amazing. I'm super excited. So, I Minnie, mean, we didn't get to hear what you were thankful for. Well, I heard from a friend I haven't heard from for a while, and um, I'm just so thankful he's doing well. So this time last year, work was stressful, life was hectic, he'd started drinking and smoking that he tried so hard to stop. And he messaged me the other day, he's like, Minnie, I've kept off it. And I was like, yes, praise the Lord. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, it's awesome. Go your friend. Absolutely. Good news. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM, positively different. And in positively different news... Okay, so I don't know if you guys have heard about this story, but there is a couple, Dick and Gillian Jardine, they're in just kind of north of Queensland in New Zealand, and they have said no to people buying their land, which they guesstimate would be between about 10 to $20 million. Okay. So they would sell it off, mm-hmm. and they've decided not to. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically, he in the 70s inherited this farm, this massive area from his dad. Nice. In the 1980s, a plan was made to move the Queensland Airport to the Remarkable Station, which is the farm that they own. Yes. Um, just because there's heaps of land, super pretty, and you know. What's wrong with the existing airport? I don't know. Okay. I'm not a clue. <laughs> All right. But they want to move it? Yep. I think maybe just expanding. I don't know. Um, but yes, yeah, so they wanted to move it. And this, yeah, that was the 80s. Nothing ever really came of that plan, but the couple kind of started getting thinking, not too seriously, but you know. Do we want to sell it? Do we not? What will we do? About four years ago in 2016, they donated four acres, no, sorry, sorry, four hectares of the land to the Ortego Foundation Trust, um, uh, so the University of Ortego. So um, it was a woodshed bay property and it was used to be developed as a research retreat for academics. Okay. Um, and now they've gifted 900 hectares to the Queen Elizabeth II National Trust, which is dedicated to protecting the country's national heritage. 
Okay, so we they're not selling it off. No. They've got plenty of it. Yes. But they are donating some very significant portions of land. It's a pretty solid amount, I for think. For good causes. Yeah, and so I think with what they have just donated, they are still going to have a continuing lease so that it can be a working farm. Yes. Um, they're going to keep working things out. How do we want to do it? What does it look like? Is there going to be a time frame? All those sorts of things. And um, they've just become part of a trust. So... I don't know. Do we have land trusts here? I know in New Zealand that's a really big thing. They have we have trusts. Okay. Yeah. Yep. But yeah. For, if you guys don't know what it is, it's basically you get a whole bunch of people in this trust um, for an area of land. So it's not just one person making the t- decision about it. It goes to a whole group of people. We go, do we want to do this? Do we not? Um, I guess just legally it just puts the accountability on more people. Um but yeah, so that's what they're doing. And I just found this so interesting. So I have not been to Queenstown. Everyone tells me it's beautiful. I believe it. But... It's super touristy, so it's expensive. So I'm like, uh, maybe later. <laughs> <laughs> I've been to Queenstown, um, done some super touristy stuff. It was amazing. Oh, no, I see why people go. Like, it was just, yeah. adrenaline capital of the world. Mm. But Dick remembers when there was just no one out there. So he grew up there. Yes. And he said, you know, he remembers when there was only one school and you had like nine kids on the bus going there. <laughs> um, see, that's that's the kind of town that I grew up in. In Tassie? Oh, absolutely. Mm. Our, um, our school bus was a 12-seater. Yeah, nice. <laughs> and we never filled it. We never filled it. It was a 12-seater bus. Was that the only school in your area or was it? No, there was another school um, and it was a lot bigger than our school. Yeah, okay. Yeah, it had like 50 kids. <laughs> it was massive. That's so good. I think my – or I went to a private school probably till grade two and three, but then after that my primary school had about 800 kids. Yeah, a little bit different. It was pretty – it was yeah, different. Yeah, very different atmosphere. <laughs> uh, my primary school had 12. Yeah. That was years one to six. But did you love that? It was the best. Yeah. It was so amazing. Uh-huh. It was just an awesome childhood. Yeah, that's There was so three good. in my year. Myself, another another guy, another girl. You had one it. teacher who taught all of you? One or teacher you had... taught all of us. Oh, that's amazing. One teacher school. Uh-huh. I was just, it was really the best. When I was younger and didn't really want to be a teacher, but I was like, if I was going to be a teacher, that was the kind of school I wanted to work at. Yes. Now that I'm actually in the process of doing teaching, I'm like, oh, that's... Go you. That's a lot of people you're catering for. <laughs> but I think if you have less students, it's more possible to spend the time with the students who need it. You know, it's not like you're... Oh, absolutely. You know. Your one-on-one time with your teacher is just um, fantastic when there's only 12 students in the school. Absolutely. I mean, the teacher's teaching every different class that there is, years one through six. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, she's spread broadly over a whole bunch of different curriculums at the same time. <laughs> yeah. But... You do get great one-on-one time. and But the thing is you do all kinds of things together. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, so there was a, lots and lots of uh, projects and stuff that we would actually do together as a whole school. Mm. And so you're associating with and friends with a whole wide age bracket. Mm. Whereas when I went to high school, you sort of only associated with people in your class and you didn't get that uh, intergenerational mix that you get in that small country school. And you're right, that adds a huge amount of value not on the academic side, but just on the social, human absolutely side life thing. skills, social, yeah. all yeah. that uh, social connectedness, being able to you know connect with people of different ages and all that mm. kind of thing. And Very I think much so. for some people, so I'm just going down tangent now since we've started. Um, that's one thing I think church is really valuable for is having the intergenerational connections. Yes, because if you don't have like say a small school like that, or you know a big family where you have nephews and nieces, and you know 
A lot of people have none of that. And we live in a society that divides everything up. Yeah. You know, we've got everything divided up by age bracket for children. Yep. Which has its advantages, but it has some distinct disadvantages. I remember in the school that I grew up in, the year six students mm. just naturally and always that was never programmed or taught or otherwise became kind of like the guardians of the younger kids mm-hmm. yeah. and even helped the teacher out that way. You know, this is just my memories of it in looking after the younger kids out in the playground and, and, and that kind of thing to make sure that, you know, things were done fairly and, and, and in order. I mean, hey, we were little brats at times as well, but, you know, that's kind of how it goes. <laughs> yeah. That is childhood for you. So we got way sidetracked, didn't we? We did, but like it was a great sidetrack. Yes, <laughs> I enjoyed it thoroughly. You're listening to the Breakfast Show podcast on Faith FM, positively different. Okay, so just looking a little bit more uh, at the um, Daniel's Daniel Andrews' war on Christianity down in Victoria. Mm. So we're we're seeing more and more coming out about the um, the new act that is they're trying to to rush through Parliament before the end of the year about conversion therapy. And basically what it does is it turns prayer into a criminal act. What? You can go to jail for, yeah, with jail time. Wait, for any kind of Serious prayer? Time, no, not for any kind of prayer. Um, if it involves prayer for a person who has issues over gender orientation or sexual orientation. So if you pray for a person who's got issues over either gender orientation or sexual orientation, you can face a couple of years of jail time just for praying for them. Real quick, how are they going to um, keep on to that? Okay, so here's what I see happening. That's a really good question. What I see happening is that people who are genuinely asking for prayer and really want the Lord's intervention are probably not going to turn you into the police. Mm. But you know that there um, are LGBTQ, etc., activists out there that will use this law mm. to target uh, people of faith who they believe need to be locked away in prison. We have seen this happen over and over and over again, and people get set up and they get taken down uh, because there is a law in place. And even if there is no conviction... Mm. Think about the money that you're going to spend on lawyers. Think about the time that you're going to waste. Think about the stress that you're going mm. to go through. Think about, uh, you know, all of the, you know, this is, this is basically what this law is about. It's not about locking up Christians mm. because it's highly unlikely that any Christians will be locked up as a result. Or people of faith, I should say, because it equally attacks uh, Islam as it does mm. Christianity. Yeah. It's coming after both religions at the same time. And so uh, it's it's not about locking these people up. It's about persecution. Mm. It's like, yeah, we know we're not going to get away with locking you up, but we're going to make your life as hard as we can. We're going to take as much money of you, off you as we can. We're going to put that money into the, into the coffers of lawyers, and we are happy to tie up our court system just so that we can persecute you. This is the most incredibly small-minded, mean-spirited mm. legislation that I've ever come across because that's what it's all about. And it is crazy how extreme it is, isn't it? Because, oh. yeah, it's really not about, you know, the people who are torturing or traumatizing. Of like, course whatever. it's not. Like, Nobody's like, doing that. Yeah, if anybody was doing that, and, yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. where did freedom go? Yeah, 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 yeah. You know? Yeah. Because as it applies to psychiatrists, which, which is uh, – uh, most interesting, 
Um, psychiatrist, let me just find my section here. Um, a psychiatrist, uh, there's jail terms for any um, psychiatrist, psychotherapist, or counselors who do not affirm the trans status or the claimed sexual orientation of a particular person. Mm. So if you don't affirm it, then you're looking for jail time. And so, okay, so where is the freedom to choose your orientation, to choose your gender or to choose your counsellor mm. and the type of counselling that you want? You know, that freedom has just been stripped away well, it's not even there, yeah. from Victorians. Yeah. This is, this, is, this is not just bad for uh, people of faith. This is bad for people who have issues over sexual orientation, uh, gender, etc. because they now no longer have a choice. Mm-hmm. Mm. As to what kind of counselling they want, yeah, they can only get one kind of counselling, and that is counselling that affirms uh, where they are. All right. Uh, so that yeah, this is um, um, but yeah, basically about silencing anyone and everyone from saying anything other than what the gender ideologists uh, want presented. All right, moving from religious liberty in Australia, and we're going to hear more about this uh, happening in Victoria and South Australia, but the Victorian legislation is the worst that we have seen in Australia so far. Uh, And, of course, you have to demonstrate that that, that it caused harm, but you know that there are going to be activists out there that are going to um, act on this legislation and entrap people, and they're not going to get a conviction Mm. because it's going to be clear that they have trapped people but what they are going to do is create persecution and what it is going to do is silence people of faith. Oh, fully. And that's what it's designed to do. Do you think there's an element that that can be a good thing, though, in the sense that you really have to work out real quickly what you are and aren't willing to stand for? I'm not saying it's a good thing. I'm not saying the legislation is a good thing. Yeah, I was wondering where you are going to go with that for a second. No, I was like, I just... there is this thing called freedom of speech, no, but no, it but is know... going to weed out... Yeah, do you know what I mean? Yes, yeah. a sifting and a shaking, so yeah. to speak, to shake out those that are sort of like, yeah, well, we're not really that convicted about what the Bible says. Yeah, like what do we, what do I believe and what am I willing to do to believe it? That's right. That's is, what I is mean. The, yeah. Is the Bible worth standing? Oh, by the way, you will get convicted under this legislation if you're living, say, in Wodonga, which is on the border with New South Wales, okay. and somebody comes to you for counselling and you say, well, I can't give it to you in this state, but if we drive five minutes to the next state, oh. I can do it there. You get, go back to Victoria, you'll be arrested. You get arrested for what you do in New South Wales. Like, that's crazy. And jailed in Victoria for something you did in New South Wales. Oh, yeah, this is some pretty full-on legislation we've ca- happening here. I wish we had uh, real quick in the United States, the Supreme Court has just handed down a 5-4 uh, finding supporting religious liberty in New York okay, uh, where there was repressive legislation that was persecuting churches and supporting businesses as you know that were coming, allowing businesses to come out of lockdown but not churches. Oh, okay. And yep. so basically they've said, no, this is a restriction on religious liberty. This is targeting religious liberty. This is not about COVID. This is a direct attack on religious liberty. And so that's actually been a really good thing happening wow. in America. Yeah. So uh, it's been a while since we've had good news on the religious liberty <laughs> front. And we should report it. Of course, this was... Action that was brought by the Catholic Diocese of New, uh, of Brooklyn, hmm. and they got a successful outcome right there. You're listening to the Breakfast Show podcast on Faith FM. 
positively different. Okay, so our, our prize this morning is Sisters in Arms, Courageous Women of the Reformation. And so this is really tolling, telling the untold story of, you know, some of the strong women during the Great Reformation of the 16th century. And I have the author of the book on the phone right now to talk with us. Suki, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Now, Suki, I've always known you as Suki, but your name is a little bit longer than that. I thought I yes. would let you give us the correct pronunciation. How do you say your name? Sukeshini. Okay, Sukeshini. Well, and, and your last name? Gunatilaka. <laughs> no, well, you say it so much clearer. I'm not even going to try that, but um, I understand your heritage is Sri Lankan. Is that right? Yes, yes. I'm from Sri Lanka. I was born and raised there and I moved to Melbourne uh, almost 15 years ago. <clears throat> Fantastic. Well, a good part of the world to uh, to come from. And so we're excited about this book. Uh, I didn't even know that you were in the process of writing a book, but this is actually fantastic. What inspired you to investigate and then to write this <clears throat> particular book on this particular subject, Great Women of the Reformation? Um, so I, w- I work for um, a ministry called Lineage Journey uh, that does short, um, short five-minute videos on history. And uh, when I first started working for Lineage, the first season that we did was on the Reformation. And so part of my job was researching and writing articles to populate the website. And one, one of the, um, one of the, the jobs that I had was also populating the website with a blog. And, um, in March 2018, we decided to do a series of articles on, on just uh, Women's History Month, because March is Women's History Month. And I started researching some of the women that are in my book, and I was really fascinated by their stories. Like, um, I, and, and some of them I'd never even heard of. And I was thinking, how is it possible that I've not heard of these women? How is it possible I've not heard of these stories? Because I love history and I read um, I read history, and so that kind of started my fascination with it. And then I was thinking, wouldn't it, wouldn't it be great if I could collect all of these and turn it into a book? Because a lot of people might not read the actual historical sources, uh, but if we turned it, if I turned it into a book that was kind of uh, in story form, it might give people more of an idea of these these amazing women and the amazing contributions they made to the Reformation. Yeah, so we often hear stories about, you know, Martin Luther, um, Calvin, Zwingli, you know, and even the uh, the early reformers like, you know, Huss and Jerome, John Wycliffe and so forth. Uh, there's been a multitude of books written about these men um, and has yep. been written about them for centuries now. Yeah. Has anybody... Has anybody else ever tackled the subject that you've tackled here, the, the, the great women of the Reformation? There are a few books, um, but I've yet to find a book in this format. So I've read, I mean, obviously when I was doing my research, I've read um, just a bunch of different books. Most of them are scholarly books done by um, just college professors as part of like a dissertation or um, just academic research. And so they're a little bit difficult to read. Uh, the rest of the books are basically written in the 19th century. Those are difficult to read too, um, just because of the language and how just heavy the language is. And then the rest of the books are factual books. Um, but again, they're like, they're not the kind of person that 
I they're not the kind of books that I would actually sit down and just read for fun. Um, so, which is why I wanted to write a book like this because I thought it'd be great if we could all these stories that I'm learning in these like really academic books or really heavy to read books. Um, wouldn't it be great if we if we could put it into a story form where like you want to sit down and read it for fun, but then you'd come away really blessed and inspired and challenged because that's what happened to me when I was reading it. I was just so blessed and inspired and challenged. So no, I not in this particular format, which is one of the reasons why I wanted to write it like this. So I love history myself, and I've done extensive research into the Great Reformation of the 16th century. Spent a lot of yep. time reading that kind of history. Just looking through your book here, half of the half of the women here I've never heard of. <laughs> I've never heard of their names, and I'm just sort of thinking, wow, there's a whole story out here that that hasn't been told. Now, yeah. Um. So, so my big question is. How much of an influence did women have on the Reformation of the 16th century? Because really, <clears throat> from the research that I've done, we just hear about the men. Yeah. Yeah. I think that women had, women played a really, I wouldn't say as big a role as men, only because of the social construct of the time, you know? Women were not allowed to go to university. Universities were only, uh, only men were allowed in universities, and only men were allowed to be um, kind of the great academic thinkers of the time. But uh, having said that, some of the women in my book were just, they were great academics and great thinkers too. Like one of the, the women in my book, Margaret, uh, of Navarre, she was the sister of Francis I, the king of France at the time, and she was highly educated. Uh, it was really unusual, but she was educated at the same level as her brother. And um, she wrote uh, she wrote some amazing theses on justification by faith. And one of her books, uh, called The Mirror of the Sinful Soul, was then translated into English by Queen Elizabeth I given as a gift to her uh, stepmother, Queen Catherine Parr. Both of them were were reform-minded women. And both of them, again, Elizabeth I and Catherine Parr um, were, were queens of England, and they had a huge influence on the Reformation in England. And so sometimes you, sometimes because the women are behind the scenes, you don't think that they've actually made a significant contribution like Luther or Calvin. But you know, um, again, Margaret of Navarre sheltered Calvin. Calvin would have been uh, burned at the stake had it not been for the fact that Margaret hid him in one of her territories. She was Duchess of Berry and she, she hid him in that territory. And so they made a significant impact that not many people know about, not just in terms of sheltering people, but just academically, socially. Um, they were activists. They, they wrote about the things that they cared about, they, they, that, that mattered to them, the, 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 the theological aspects of it as well. And I, I found that really fascinating because I was like, this is so cool. You know, I, I love Luther, I love Calvin, but then look, there's these women that contributed so much. Olympia Morata, another person I write about, another woman I write about in my book, she was just such an academic of her time. She, she wrote a ton, she translated the Bible, she, she lectured on, on Calvin in Italy. You know, Italy was like the very center of, of where, um, uh, you know, the papacy was strong. And yet she lectured on Calvin. She lectured on justification by faith in universities there, which was unheard of at that time because it was uh, so male-dominated. So it was it's just really amazing to, to learn about this and to, to research it and to find the impact that they actually need. Yeah. 
Yeah, that was interesting because uh, Olympia Marata as you know, was one of the names as I was reading down through the list, and I'm like, well, I have no idea who that is. And so now that you've just sort of given me that little uh, tidbit, that that taste, so to speak, I'm like, I really need to know who you know who this person is and more about her because. As you say, the social constructs of the time, the culture of the time was that women didn't get involved in these kind of pursuits. They weren't yeah. educated and they weren't academics. And so these women that you're mentioning here um, are really standing out. What's also interesting is that, you know, having studied the history of the Reformation myself, you know, you, you, you read about the, uh, you know, Calvin being sheltered in the VAR and places like that. The histories don't actually record how much influence uh, you know the Queen of Navarre had at the time and, and so forth in actually doing that. It's just like it, yeah. it, it more mentions the country and the location, whereas if yeah. there had been a king, it may have been very, very different. I yeah. mean, <laughs> Queen Elizabeth is probably an exception. There's a lot written about Queen Elizabeth I and yeah. particularly, um, you know, her being a staunch uh, Protestant, reform-minded person. Um, but yeah, some of these other other women that you've mentioned here are, are, are very very unheard of. Yeah, and again, it's a social construct of the time. For example, in France, uh, France France had a law called the Salic Law, which didn't allow for queens regnant. So what that basically means it did like it didn't allow for a queen to rule. So only men could rule. Um, and so because of the Salic Law, you find that uh, it wasn't just the, <clears throat> the fact that only kings could rule. Uh, but uh, other notable women or women that did make a significant contribution, like Margaret of Navarre, were not as um, prominently featured in the, the literature of the time or even in the conversation of the time. And yet she made such a massive contribution to France as a nation, uh, but also uh, to Protestantism. And you don't really hear about that, uh, again, because of just the way society and culture was structured at that time. So it's really interesting to, to begin to it um and to find out more about it. Uh, but then, you know, like Olympian Marata, she had the opportunities that she had because her father was a scholar and he educated her at home. Uh, he brought in all his scholarly academic friends um, and tutored her at home. And so that is why, and then he gave her opportunities because he was uh, one of the professors at the University of Ferrara and he gave her opportunities to lecture on Protestantism. Um, and so that. You know, they, they, women did have opportunities like that, but they were few and far between. Now, one of the names here that does ju- jump out off the page to me that I do know the story of is Marie Durand. Do you want to share a yeah. little bit of uh, her story very quickly with people that might be unfamiliar? Give us a bit of a, a, a taste of what you'll find in the book uh, with okay. the story of Marie Durand. So, so with Marie, uh, Marie Durand, she... Um, she was a Huguenot in the, she lived in the 17th century. Her brother Pierre, um, was a Huguenot pastor. And when Marie and her family, um, became, or they were Huguenots, but during that period of time, uh, France was going through a major change. And what had happened is that, uh, King Louis XIV had revoked an edict, um, that previously gave Huguenots freedom of religion. Um, and when that edict was revoked, uh, Huguenots were basically told either you, either you become a Catholic and go to mass tomorrow or tomorrow you will be executed. So basically when the edict went into effect, either they became a Catholic and went to mass or they were executed. Uh, their churches were torn down. They were uh, arrested. They were, uh, sent, um, 
to uh, as galley slaves. It was just, it was awful. Marie's parents were very spiritual people. They had a Bible hidden in their walls. Um, they, her father had carved out Bible verses in their home, which I understand that even if you go there today, you'd be able to see them. Um, and so she, Pierre, Pierre was really an inspiration to Marie and the family because he was a real mission-minded young man. He, he decided to be ordained as a pastor at a time when uh, ordination as a Huguenot minister carried the death penalty. He had a, he had a bounty on his head. And because he chose to be ordained as a minister, his entire family and his wife's family were endangered. And Marie uh, was arrested when she was 19. She, she was just married. There's a little bit of haze about uh, whether she was married or just engaged. But she was just married and she was taken away from her husband. Um, and she was imprisoned in the Tower of Constance um, for 38 years. Um, and the, the interesting thing about that story is that every so often the king sent a lieutenant or an official to get the women to recant. The, the conditions in the tower were appalling. Like the tower had one hole in the middle of the floor um, for refuse. I've been and in the tower. Have you? Mm. And then I, I wish I could. I haven't. I haven't. I've just seen like pictures of it. It's and then there's a hole in the. Yeah. And then there's a hole in the, the, the roof to let in light, but it also let in water and snow and rain and anything else. And that was it. They just lived in this circular stone tower. And it was just really awful. The, the tower would flood in spring when the rain came. And it was just, it was horrific. And what they would do is when conditions were really miserable, they would send an intendant or a, a lieutenant, a king's lieutenant, and he would be like, well, we can't. Just go for a mass and then you can leave. And a lot of women did that, but Marie didn't. Um, and she, in the tower, and you've probably seen this, Lyle, if you've been there, but in the tower, there's a, a word carved in there called resiste, which means to re- which means resist. And uh, many historians believe that Marie was the one that, carved it there and it was just amazing she was just so strong she refused to let them break her they, she refused to let them take away her, her, her right to a free conscience and that fascinated me that she was such a strong-willed woman that she she knew what she believed in she was clear about her personal conviction she stood on the word of god and she refused to let anybody take away her right to religious liberty to freedom of conscience and that's and though she couldn't take up arms, uh, she, she resisted the way, you know, only way that she knew how, which was just to refuse to give in to them. And I thought, like, that was just amazing. And so I tell a great deal of that story in the book. Um, and it was just, she inspires me. She's one of my favorite, favorite characters from that period of time. Uh, she and her brother. And it's just amazing how their faith, um, their faith and their determination to be faithful to the word of God just, just drove them to make really difficult choices. Um, yeah. Absolutely. And this is one of many uh, great stories that you're going to find as you read through Sisters in Arms, Courageous Women of the Reformation. Uh, Suki, thank you so much for joining us here this morning. Of course, you can get this book at uh, ABC Adventist Bookshop Centre or BBF, Better Books and Foods. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, Suki. Um, and, thank you for uh, having me. Thanks for being a part of the Faith FM family. Join our community on Facebook or get in touch at 1-800-FAITH-FM.